Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, September the 28th, uh, 2021. Uh, it's early afternoon on the West Coast in the United States, in California. And for those of you into anniversaries, we're getting close to a very big anniversary. America is about to celebrate its 250th birthday. Countdown to July 4th, 2026, apparently is only four years, nine months, and uh, six days away, for those of you interested in these sorts of things. Um, it's what is now known as the United States Semi-Quincentennial. Uh, it's a time of renewal. Uh, America is celebrating its 250th, and people are being encouraged to be part of the planning, um, all sorts of planning about renewing, revitalizing, reinventing American democracy in a funny kind of way. It's similar to a lot of nonprofits in America. Um, the person I'm about to talk to in this conversation is the head of a a foundation in America called New America. And they're also in the business of uh, renewing the promise of America. It's a Washington, D.C.-based foundation. Um, and I'm going to talk to their CEO, Anne-Marie Slaught, who has a new book out called Renewal. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it's an interesting book because it combines both the promise of renewal in the United States and the experience uh, Slaughter had with uh, the New America Foundation in a crisis that happened about three years ago. Uh, some of you will remember that uh, the New America Foundation was involved in a, in a scandal associated with some accusations that they'd got rid of one of their fellows because they were being funded uh, by Eric Schmidt at Google. Uh, so what Anne-Marie has done in her book, Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics, and she does indeed begin the book with reference to America's 250th anniversary, is talk about both the personal and the political. So Anne-Marie, enough from me. Welcome. Uh, why did you choose in this book, Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics, to combine a narrative about what you went through at your foundation and the challenges and opportunities for America when it's about to celebrate its 250th anniversary? Well, I started with a personal crisis in part because that was the beginning of what I came to understand was a journey of renewal for me, a, a process of transformation. I have also spent a lot of time thinking about American renewal or really more, more accurately renewing the promise of America. And I thought I could weave the two together in a way that would not be a standard policy book that would reach to a broader audience. Uh, is, I had that experience with the Atlantic article that I wrote in 2012 on uh, why women still can't have it all, where I think the impact of the article was much greater because many women could read it and were drawn in to my own personal story and then 
started thinking about larger issues. And here again, what I wanted to do was to really pioneer a kind of blend of memoir and reflection and manifesto in a way that has no subheads. It's not a standard march through an argument policy book. It's more really, again, a set of reflections and memories and uh, visions. You begin the book with reference to a train journey you did in the heart or the beginning of the crisis. You said it was the, the worst uh, the worst few hours of your professional life. Uh, I wonder, do you think that America's going through a similar crisis, the America of Black Lives Matter, the America just emerging in a post-Donald uh, Trump world, America in foreign policy decline? You've made your name as a foreign policy scholar. Obviously, the catastrophe of Afghanistan is fresh in our minds. Is there an equivalence between what America is going through today and what you went through in 2017? personally, in a professional sense? I do think there's an analogy. I mean, I am not the country. That is obvious. And, and you know, I'm, I'm suggesting that there are lessons uh, that I think we can apply uh, to ourselves, to our organizations, to the country. But I'm, I'm certainly not analogizing directly uh, between my experience and the country. But I, I yes, I think the country is in deep crisis. Certainly the worst crisis in my lifetime, I've lived through, I did well, Vietnam, but I was very young, but Watergate uh, and, uh, you know, the sort of the end of Vietnam, I remember quite clearly, and the hostage crisis, 9-11, we've been through many crises, but but I've ne I never expected to have the subver the, the blatant subversion of our democracy uh, happening, you know, and sort of in front of our eyes at the same time, 2026 will be a hinge anniversary. We will be moving between the 250 years of the United States as a majority white nation to 250 years, if we last that long, uh, as a plurality nation where there will be no one majority. Uh, we will have pluralities, uh, and, that is a seismic change, and you are seeing a lot of the fallout of that. At right. The same uh, we, we, we had uh, Keith Boykin on the show, the CNN commentator, African-American scholar, journalist, a legal figure. I'm sure you know him. Uh, yes. he, he was on recently talking about his new book about the end of the white majority in America. Is that the core issue as America stumbles towards its 24th? 250th anniversary, Anne-Marie, is, um, is it about race and this profound shift in the identity of the country from a white country to a black and brown country? I do think so. I think race is, it's our original sin. Uh, obviously, having founders who proclaimed universal equality and many of them enslaved uh, many people, including their own children. But more fundamentally, it is the uh, constant stumbling block to a to our ability to to feel more of the solidarity that I think more nations that that have more unity, ethnic unity, racial unity, religious unity. Our strength is our diversity, but we have always drawn a line 
between a constructed white majority, again, definitely constructed, and people of color, particularly African-Americans. And we have to confront that head on uh, to be able to be the country that we can be. You say uh, that we have to confront it head on. You're sounding like yeah. a, a parent here telling a child that they've yeah. been naughty. I mean, you know that America is never going to confront this head on because at least half of the country denies what you're saying and they're completely unwilling to, to, to confront it head on. So what's the point of always going on? I, I'm not saying you, but everyone seems to be going on and on about we have to confront this head on and we're not going to and we never will. We being American. Well, there is no one we. I uh, had nothing like it. But I disagree. We, I would say quite the contrary, that, that uh, certainly Trump supporters uh, and many in the Republican Party are directly confronting it. They are but, open. But not in the way you, you're encouraging in, in renewal. In fact, the reverse. Well, but but it, it is out in the open more than in, I wouldn't say more than it's ever been in my lifetime because obviously at the beginning of my lifetime, Jim Crow was still in, in effect. But the very open, you know, you will replace us, replacement theory that, that somehow pe Democrats are going to want to replace white people with people of color, that is openly there. And I will say it's openly there in Europe too. It's just that Europe is not nearly as close as the United States is and may never be to this kind of fundamental change. And the United States has a narrative that we are all American regardless of race, ethnicity, creed, but that of course has, has, is not true. So I, I do think we, we are confronting it. My proposition is that you have to confront it directly and honestly if you want then, and this is the second half of the book, to actually be able to build something much bigger and more positive. It's not that I think that's automatically going to happen. I'm not crazy. I read the news. But I believe that we can get beyond at least some of it if there's also a way to once again have a positive vision. You call, you seem to call in the book for a sort of a, a, a cultural reevaluation. We had David Gessner on the show, the... Uh... The environmental writer and expert on Thoreau and on um, yeah. uh, 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 on uh, on that sort of nineteenth-century uh, version of, of masculinity, you're quite critical of that in the book. You suggest that America, to celebrate its two hundred and fiftieth, perhaps needs to get beyond uh, the Thoreaus and Emersons and this idea of um, uh, muscular independence. <laughs> I, I am indeed. I, I mean, look, I, so I have a chapter called Rugged Interdependence, where I say, look, we have this trope of rugged individualism, although it was actually coined by Herbert Hoover in 1922. Uh, but he was drawing on traditions, but that idea of rugged individualism is a 20th century idea. And there's certainly that narrative, and it's true in parts uh, in, in the United States, although it's worth noting that when Thoreau was at Walden Pond, his mother did his laundry and brought him dinner. So I, you know, yeah, and, it, and everyone, yeah, and it, it shows the absurdity, obviously, of Thoreau. <laughs> uh, and what I say is that actually, if you read, I spent a lot of time reading wagon train narratives. And, you know, the, the party pioneer going across the, the Great Plains and the howling winds. And a lot of that is true. But if you read narratives by women, 
they are not emphasizing the sort of individualist side. They're all saying, you know, we depended on everybody else in the wagon train, wherever we settled, we depended on our neighbors and our families. And of course, if you're looking at African-American narratives, Hispanic narratives, many others, you get a narrative much more of solidarity than of individualism. So I actually think you've got to put the two together. This is not a racing one by the other, but I think there's an equal tradition of interdependence as there is individualism and indeed of solidarity that can be recovered. Aren't you splitting the baby here? The notion of rugged interdependence is obviously slightly absurd. No, I think both. So a lot of what I talk about is both and thinking. I mean, that's so you're, doing, you're taking two positions and you're combining, you know, the rugged, yeah. in, rugged individualism and then, I don't know, another concept of interdependence. And you're saying the two can go together, but can they really? Absolutely. I mean, I've spent 10 years writing about how human beings are both competitive and caring at the same time. And that this notion that, you know, we are we're either going to, you know, have careers or we're going to be nurturing human beings is ridiculous that human beings actually they fall in different places on the caring to competitive spectrum, depending on personality. But in fact, we are both and a good society allows us to be both. And similarly, I don't want to give up individualism. I'm a I'm a woman who spent most of her early life rejecting the idea of being defined as a daughter, sister, mother, wife. But I've spent a lot of the second part of my life saying, you know, I really value being a mother and a wife and a daughter. And I don't see any reason why I can't be both. And I think that's true for the country, too. Renewal is a short book. And as you say, it's very readable, very accessible. It's also in its own way quite dense. Lots of references to many different scholars, writers, thinkers. Not all of them were women, but I, I found a lot of the most interesting references to women. I was intrigued with your references to Kate uh, Raworth um, and his, uh, and sorry, her, not his, her, um, her, her, her rethinking of, 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 of American capitalism. I've had Rebecca Henderson, I'm sure you know her work from Harvard on the show. She has a new book out, uh, Reimagining Capitalism. You suggest that we should or shouldn't renew capitalism, reimagine capitalism. Are you in the Henderson camp or the uh, uh, the Raworth camp when it comes to capitalism? Oh, dear. I, so I have not read the Henderson book. Um, I think I am... I definitely think we need to reimagine capitalism. I'm not, I, I probably am not for giving it up, uh, but I think it is, it is, I, I argue that it's based on half human beings, right? That it really focuses only on, on growth and individual success and doesn't emphasize either sustainability or, or uh, community or care. And again, I don't think these are either or. So what I write about is a capitalism that, that yes, like Kate Rayworth's idea, can be sustainable by being bounded by what we owe one another and what we need to do to survive on this earth. Um, but I, I suspect more than Kate, I would, I would still I would still recognize a system that I that I think of it as capitalism rather than a than a sort of more collectivist version. We had another interesting scholar on the show, another Harvard uh, academic, Julie <laughs> Batilana. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but I think actually you'd like her book. She's trying to get us to rethink power. You had 
one of your chapters was entitled, hold on, I'm looking through it. Um, Sharing well, power. Yeah, no, one of your chapters was, well, share power, but also lead from the center and the mm -hmm. edge. And I, I think what Batalana is trying to suggest is that it's at the edge where power really lies. Is there a need in the next few years, uh, Anne-Marie, to rethink the very nature of power? And do women, women like Batalana and yourself and Raworth, are perhaps better positioned to rethink power than men? So I haven't read Bajalana's work. I have to make that that clear. I have written about power for years as a network theorist. So talking about power from the yeah. top in a hierarchy or power from the center, uh, which in a network or a web, the person who has the most connections in the center is the most powerful. I do believe that in in societies where we are are so faced with inequality and, and tension and conflict between the marginalized, that notion of marginalized tells you people are on the edge. It's very important to try to do both. To, to You do have to exercise power. I don't know how to live in a world without some people exercising power, but I think you can exercise it in a way that is much more attentive to the people uh, at the edge. I haven't ever thought about those people having the most power. I think I, the farthest I've gone is to think about as the leader of an organization or again, a citizen of a country, how can we, how can we include the voices and the genuine participation of those who are on the edge and that doing that is actually a way forward for all of us. Yeah, you you suggest that the uh, as I said at the beginning, the beginning the beginning of your book is about this crisis that you had at the New America Foundation, and um, it was highly publicized. And you suggest that you learned a lot about yourself and of your relations to others in this crisis, particularly in terms of power. Uh, and there are lots of anecdotes laced into your narrative. Um, talk to me about what you learned from this crisis in terms of dealing with others, particularly others who perhaps have less formal power than you within the organization? Hmm. Well, I think my, uh, the thing I probably learned most was to lead much more collectively. And I think this is a particular issue for women leaders because at least as I was socialized, largely by men, my husband and a certain number of mentors, and really Sheryl Sandberg's narrative and my narrative in many ways is, is to be assertive, to you know, sit at the table, take, take positions, you know, don't apologize, don't, don't play into traditional stereotypes of women. Be as assertive and really more masculine as you can be and be out front, you know, have that vision, have other people follow you. And that has been important, was important for me in finding my voice as a leader. But this crisis definitely taught me the value of not leading by consensus, because I, I don't really think, I think that's very hard to do, but being far more collective in the way that I approach decisions and actually also sharing power with people who can do things I can't do. So really recognizing what I'm very good at and what I'm not good at and not pretending that's going to change, but rather complementing uh, that with, with other members of, of my team. And then also, as you said, for people who have less power, I can't eradicate hierarchy completely or even, even halfway, 
but I can find ways to flatten that hierarchy at critical moments to create much more space for other voices, more participation, and for genuinely listening, not always necessarily deciding the way some of the younger people in this organization or many others want me to, or want us to, because there, there's a group of us, uh, but being far more open to change and to accepting perspectives we might once have dismissed, certainly than I think I would have been before this crisis and before the process of looking back to earlier earlier moments in my leadership. It didn't have anything to do with what led to this crisis. It had to do with the, the response of my organization and realizing I did not have the support of my organization as much as I would have expected to. And that then triggered a whole journey. Yeah, you use this term radical honesty. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what honesty isn't radical. You 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 wrote a medium piece during the crisis at the new uh, at your foundation, when the truthy when the truth you wrote is is messy and hard, uh, but you did delete some of your tweets, some of your more controversial tweets during the crisis. Do you think we always need to tell the truth, or um, perhaps uh, is this our current obsession with truth, particularly in social media, ill advised? I don't think that social media is the way to try to tell anything. <laughs> and, and in fact, you know, I used to love Twitter because early in early days I was on in 2011, you could actually have discussions with people, not, not nuanced debates, but you could really learn and engage with people you didn't know. That is no longer true. So I don't, I, no, I don't think social media and truth uh, are, are particularly aligned in many ways. Uh, that I did delete a tweet because I thought on reflection it was wrong uh, and that I was feeding a narrative of fake news that I didn't want to. And, and I don't mean to be, char I mean, this stuff can get very childish. I was just looking through the New York Times piece and there was a, a reference to your declaration on Twitter, which, as I said, has now disappeared. I, I'd rather <laughs> admire you for deleting tweets. I think tweets should exist to be deleted, but that's my <laughs> like Like Instagram. No, but I do think, and again, you know, the point is not to rehash a particular crisis or even to defend myself. The, the point was, I do, what I think, what I mean by radical honesty is just staring in the face those things that we so often want to deny. And I use this example that David Bradley, who was chair of Atlantic Media, told me, he was a board member, he said, run toward the criticism, even if you think that criticism is 98% wrong and only 2% right. He uses the example of an argument with your spouse. Run toward the stuff that you, that you don't want to face, that, that makes you flinch, that makes you defensive. And all of us are defensive in that setting. Ask for it. You know, I called board members and said, tell me, tell me what do you think I'm doing well and what I'm not. I went back to previous bosses that I'd had uh, and really tried to excavate. Uh, and that's not comfortable and it's not fun. And that is what I mean by radical honesty. The same is true as an American. You know, if I, there, there are narratives that are easier to take. Yes, there was racism. Yes, there was slavery. Rather than really focusing, as I try to do, uh, you know, on, on what does it mean that Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own children? What does it mean that Monticello is a plantation? What does that mean for my understanding of my own country?
The crisis, uh, Anne-Marie, was with a man called Barry C. Lynn. I think he was a fellow at your institution and then you got rid of him. He's a critic of um, monopoly power of the Googles and, 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 and Amazons of the world. He's actually been on my show. He has a new book out on uh, antitrust. What did you learn about big tech? Uh, less about your own relationship with Schmidt and Silicon Valley, but more about the dangers of big tech that came out of, 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 of the crisis of, of your foundation, of its association with, with, with big tech companies. I admire Barry Lynn's work. I have always admired it. I admire a lot of the work that open markets did. It became open markets under my leadership here at New America. I helped raise money for him. This is not about that. And I really don't want to go into the crisis, but I, I, I wrote a book in 2017 that came out before all of it that actually endorsed that position in one of my own books. So I'm much more on the antitrust side. Uh, but that this has nothing to do with my relationship with big tech or New America's relationship with big tech. It has to do, which we've criticized, I mean, Barry criticized big tech for a decade while he was here, and we continue to do so even after he left for open markets. The point of this is much more about it's a crisis. Who cares if it's that crisis? It could have been any other crisis. What happens when you have a crisis? How do you respond? Do you respond in a way that actually turns it into something where you can learn and change uh, and, and improve? Uh, and can that be, can that process be useful uh, for organizations or indeed even for our country? We had though an, another, someone I know you, you, I'm sure you know very well, Alec Ross, he has a new book out in some ways quite similar actually to yours, The Raging Twenties about renewal in America. Um, I asked Alec this question and I'll ask you, where do you hope America will be by 2026? Let's 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 do some imagining, uh, Anne Marie. Um, five years time, or four or five years time, where can America be if it is to be truly renewed um, uh, on uh, in four years, nine months, and six days time, and the 250th anniversary of its foundation. Well, I love Alex's book, and he's a he's a close friend, and they there are they are parallel in many ways. He writes about you know a new social contract, new labor power, yeah. and I assume you're on the same page as him when it comes to taxation and corporate yes, taxation. In very particular. much so, very much so. I, I really like the book a lot. Um, so my vision of 2026 would probably include a lot of the changes he wants to make. Um, but it would also re really, as I envisage it, we would be well on our way to new narratives about the country. To I talk about changing our national motto from e pluribus unum, out of many one, to pluris et unum, many and one. This idea that we can be extraordinarily diverse, that we are going to be the country that most reflects the world's populations, not just the European population, not just the African population, but all the world's populations, and that we can connect to the rest of the world as a foreign policy person, but that that also means we're a place of just amazing talent and the innovation that comes from difference and the collision of difference. Conflict can come from that too. It's not all rosy, but 
there is a very powerful positive narrative there for white people as well as, as people of color, for black, brown, and, and white Americans, uh, for all Americans. And so part of what I look at in my vision of 2026 is a lot of, of policy change. Like I'd like to see us with 25 states that have ranked choice voting on our way to reconstructing our democracy. I'd like to see us in a very different place when it comes to capitalism and, and education, other areas. But for me, most fundamental is to imagine new founders, not just the founders that we've always venerated, but a new set of founders, the way Barack Obama talked about John Lewis as a founder in his eulogy, uh, that, that people would come together and tell the stories of their communities and they would be the whole stories not just the white narrative, not and no one uh, group's narrative, but that you could do that with uh, young reporters on the ground. So I have a vision that says, unlike 1976, when I was 18 and it was the bicentennial and it was really sort of America triumphant, even though it was just after Watergate, this would be a much more complex process of commemoration, of reckoning, of reparation, but also of honoring and healing. As you say, the truth is messy and hard, and that's what you're calling for a new American patriotism. Yes. What is this new American patriot, and what should this patriotism look like in 2026? Well, I, I favor James Baldwin's version of patriotism. He said that I love my country so much that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. And I don't always think we should criticize. There are many things I can honor and love, but I do think that it's my duty as an American and as a citizen to constantly hold my government and my fellow citizens to what they say they are rather than what they do, or to, to point out that gap between what we do and what we say. And that, that, I don't believe Americans are better than any other human beings on the face of the earth. I think at our best, our system encourages and supports that process of accountability. And so to me, being a patriot, loving my country means a, very, a hefty dose of criticism and accountability, uh, but also a, a sense that that is, that is the job of all Americans. Radical honesty, Anne-Marie. And finally, in the, your book, you, you write about the old me and the new me, and the old me being uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter. Where, where do you want to be personally in 2026? Where, what part of the journey do you still need to make in terms of um, renewing yourself? Perhaps we'll have this conversation again in four years. Huh. Uh, well, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a job where I am continually learning. Uh, I do want to spend the next five years working with a group called Us at 250 or US is two, at 250, however you want to read yeah, it. I don't think I got them in the uh, imagery, but we'll have to get them in. Uh, there's lots of organizations, though, sort of throwing their hat into the 2026 ring. There are, and us at 250 is we're just we're getting going, but but it's it again is a deeply participatory uh, kind of movement where we'll engage lots of people. I want to do that. I think for me, as my son, one of my sons recently told me, "Mom, it's I really like your book, but you really have no idea what it's like to be 25 in this country." So for me, a lot of the next five years will be spent 
focus much more on the experience of millennials uh, and Gen Z. Uh, because how are you going to how you going to learn about that, Amory? How how do you learn about being twenty five when you're in your mid to late sixties? I, I think there's a lot of listening and a lot of engagement, frankly. I mean, not just with my children, but with my employees. And and I do think actually, as my generation, the biggest, you know, the boomers, we were the biggest generation for a long time. It, our society is deeply tilted to privilege us. So a lot of this has to be focusing on what our children and grandchildren need. Well, we've had that's another show. We had Jill Filipovich on the show about Gen X and, and all that stuff. It's a, another interesting conversation. It's great stuff, Anne Marie, the new book, Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and po Politics, is, uh, is classic Anne Marie Slaughter, energetic, erudite, and readable. Congratulations. You're talking to me from your beautiful looking kitchen, it looks like, in Washington, D.C., in our post-COVID, COVID times. What else should people be reading in addition to renewal, Anne-Marie? Ah, well, yes, I'm in my office. Not many other people are, but I would strongly recommend reading Heather McGee's The Sum of Us. Yeah, Heather's been on the show too. It's an excellent book and she's a wonderful interview. Yeah, your, your book and her book go very nicely together. I'm loving hers. Well, congratulations on the book, uh, Anne-Marie. Continue to renew yourself we'll have you back on before 2026 to discover <laughs> where you are and where you still need to be thank you so much keep well thank you great fun